Welcome to the Man on Second podcast part of the Coaching Curtain Podcast Network. We're back after a couple of weeks of a break. We took a little time off for the Thanksgiving and then the winter meetings to digest what was going on. We hope everyone out there enjoying these, this holiday season. Uh, but we're back this week uh, in the channel. And as always, our aim, our mission is to raise the baseball IQs of our audience. And we certainly will do that today with our special guest. And backed by popular demand, Stan Meek. Stan was my first guest um, when um, I joined the Coach and Kernan Network. Network, excuse me. And we're now on episode ninety-four on the network. And now, Stan, this is my man on second, the twelfth. So you're number one and number twelve uh, on my on my personal list and my contributions to the network. Stan, of course, his track record is second to none among. Uh, in the last 20, 30 years of anyone who does or did the MLB draft. He's ranks right up there. Uh, Stan, of course, his background, he was with the Marlins. Before that, the Montreal Expos. Uh, Stan was with the Rays when they were the Devil Rays back in Tampa Bay, Detroit, and more. He's now retired, and he's uh, staying active, and he's a grandfather enjoying time with the grandkids. And uh, Stan, happy holidays, and welcome, my friend. Man, I appreciate it. It's good to be back. Yeah, I've uh, listened to several of the episodes, and uh, you guys do a great job, and I hope I don't drag it down too much with me being <laughs> on here, but it's a lot of fun to be back. Yeah, and, and we always like having you on, obviously, and, uh, um, you know, I've known Stan for 30 years for the people out there um, who are who are just following in, um, and, and Stan is you know, really astute. And what I want to kind of jump in as we kind of, you know, the, the winter meetings ended uh, about a week or so ago. And and Stan, this is what stood out to me. It's almost like the first time in about eight or 10 years, MLB and the players kind of got it why there's a winter meetings. They're winter meetings to make moves and and draw up interest and, and drag and, and, you know, give excitement to the sport. And a ton of activity was very refreshing to see. You know, Trey Turner, Aaron Judge, Xander Bogarts, uh, Jacob DeGrom, Justin Verlander. Uh, just the other day, Carlos, uh, or yesterday, Carlos Correa signs with San Francisco. It's after the meetings. But a lot of buzz went on with the biggest names in the sports. And, you know, as you, as someone who's worked there, you know, many a year we sat there and it dragged. And we also had some years where we stayed way too busy. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it was really good to see because uh, it seems like with the Scott Boris rule, we always wait till you know, February to get things done. So it was nice to see some things happen. And uh, boy, there was a lot of money spent. There was a lot of teams that kind of changed their face. And uh, it was exciting to watch because every day you just didn't know what was going to happen next. You knew the names, but you didn't know when they were going to go down. And it's been a long time since that many big names went down at the winter meetings, but it was really, really fun to see. I think from a marketing standpoint, we'll look at that that point of it. As someone, you know, with MLB.com, I'd go to the meetings, and I always enjoyed going to them. But the last three or four, uh, and I remember, like, being at the airport in San Diego when we were leaving. I happened to be waiting for my flight and, and Tom Verducci, and we were just talking. Like, nothing happened. And Tom noted that, yeah, you know, the MLB Network had, a had you know, kind of a camp set up there. And, and you know, with the, but he said, like, ESPN just sent, like, a reporter and the photographer, you know. Uh, and a lot of outlets were stopped covering the the meetings because they like you said they dragged it there was no urgency and and i always thought it was a missed marketing opportunity because you're you're talking about early december you're trying to sell tickets for the next season with holiday ticket pricing and season ticket plans merchandise for christmas and so forth on on holidays and and the league just seemed to kind of miss the missed the boat on it because like you say the 
the best deals tend to be if you wait them out, that mentality. But that's why I think it was really important and is important, especially in a very diverse uh, uh, sports landscape, to have teams active at the meetings. If ever, if the eyes of the sport are on your marquee, it's like having a party and no one shows up. No, you're right. And uh, I just it was really fun to see a lot of the heavy lifting done. It really was. And uh, again, it's it's been a while since that's happened. But boy, I would say we had a lot of heavy lifting done at this one. And it, it did. It, it, it totally energized everything as we watched it. And uh, when you see the Phillies and you kind of knew they were going to do some things and, you know, you knew the Yankees were going to wrestle to try to get the judge thing done and people are going to take shots at that. And where's that going to go? And it just created to me a lot of, lot of interest. And, uh, and, you know, as a team, I think you'd like to come out of there. I know we always wanted to come out of there with kind of an idea of where we were and then try to add to and finish up the club when that was over. But we hit a stretch there, as you talk about, for years that you just, you know, it seemed like, again, they wanted to wait, wait, wait until the best deal happened. But, boy, it seemed like a lot of the teams uh, really put their best foot forward and uh, and made things happen. And now they can go and, and add on and finish out their club. But uh, a lot of those big things happened. So, uh, it was, you know, as, they, as guys talk about, like a lot of aircraft carriers, you know, were landed on that thing. So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. And I want to I want to hit on your expertise because let's let's kind of dive into from an executive standpoint, what the winter meetings can be like, you know, for an organization. I And two come to mind where, like I said, there's some years I, you know, Marlins coverage when I was on them for MLB.com. We carried the winter meetings. 2007 comes to mind. 2011 come to mind. 2007, we were in Nashville. That was when the Miguel Cabrera, Dontra Willis to the Tigers trade was made. And, and Stan, just, you know, as someone who was in the room and, and the buzz of when when a big deal comes down, because I can tell you it's kind of funny, a day or so into those meetings, and we were over at the um, uh, in, in Nashville at the Gaylord, which is expansive. You know, you could get lost real easily there in the lobby. But I remember yeah. when, when buzz started coming down from a media point of view, as someone who worked the lobby and, you know, would always try to bump into someone and, and you know, you see what was going on. And I just remember seeing, okay, some buzz was going. Jack McKeon comes down with purpose in his face, and he's hustling over, and he goes over, and he talks to the late Scott Reed, who was with the Tigers at the time, executive. And you can see they were doing more than the casual talk. So my my antenna goes up. I say, okay, that's interesting. Jack makes a beeline to Scott. Tigers, the Miguel thing was was kind of simmering for a while. Then I look over and there's somebody else on another side of the lobby. I don't, it might have even been an Orin, you know, maybe Orin Freeman or someone uh, from the Marlins, the late great Orin. He like bumps into like Al Kaline or, or somebody executive with the with the Tigers. And I'm like putting to it. I said, something's going down because Marlins people are, are running to Tigers people in the lobby. And then obviously within a day or so. Cabrera and Dontra Willis get traded for Cameron Mabin, Andrew Miller, and, and Burke Badenhop and three others. And uh, major, major trade, obviously, didn't work out for the Marlins in the end. But Stan, kind of take us through when that buzz goes from your point of view as you know, part of being in the, in the war room when it's happening, how those things kind of come to fruition and how they kind of accelerate. Yeah, with our situation, you know, it was always a money issue in terms of trying to keep payroll where they wanted to keep payroll. And uh, as these guys, you know, start to stay in your system and they start to uh, it starts to add the years to their to their time that they've been playing. And so, you know, the money is going to start to get up. And so you kind of look at, you know, what's the plan going forward and how do we do this? And then 
you start looking at, okay, what clubs really, when you decide kind of what you're wanting to do, uh, if it's in terms of moving players or if it's in terms of acquiring players, and you go, okay, who fits Who fits for us? You know, how, how does it fit? So you kind of eliminate a lot of the clubs because you kind of go, okay, they really don't have that need or they don't, it's just not a fit. So really trying to find the fit is what's working. And then all the time, uh, the guys in the front office, or we're working out in the lobby and we're going around talking to people. And all of a sudden these things kind of happen in a, in a, not in a vacuum, but they just kind of happen out in that lobby where things kind of start to work and you go, they, they have an idea that might work for you. And so you always take it back to the general manager or the president of baseball ops. And of course, with our situation, Jeffrey, the owner was always there. So he would listen in as well. And so we'd kind of get it started that way. And then uh, as it got, as it got going, then you would, uh, you know, you would just, again, try to see kind of where the fit was. And then you'd be talking and all of a sudden somebody else would walk in the room and say, hey, we got another opportunity here. Here's here's one I just got with this guy. So, all you know, as you did that, you would have conversations going on, but then different clubs would be entering it as guys entered the rooms because everybody had a certain amount of clubs that they were responsible for. So they, it might be three or four clubs you were responsible for to see kind of where they were and what they were going to do. So as you came back into the room from those meetings, meeting with those fellows, then these different ideas would start to get tossed out. And then you start saying, okay, which one fits for us best? How, you know, so how do we put this together? And you put it together by really where you find the best fit. And then once you kind of see a fit start to happen, and then it kind of matriculates up to uh, – where the general managers kind of start to talk about them. You know, we kind of started it. It would work up to the general manager and then it start to get serious. And then we would include the owner obviously and, and what he wanted to do. So it's just a process. And as you do, it's just kind of a dance, you know, it's kind of a dance between two clubs once it gets started. And uh, it's, it's really a, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to watch. And then you think you have it all done and then one little piece or something won't be added. And it now takes you back to square one and you got to rethink it and re-go over it and how you put it together. So that, that trade uh, with Miguel and Dontrell, that was a, that was a tough one. Uh, and I think it was done somewhat out of need, but it was a, uh, it was a fun one to, to walk through. Yeah. I mean, it, yes, there is that adrenaline rush. And like I said, the, the memes are a little different now, obviously that was pre Twitter. So not everything was instantaneously out there um, once anything could happen. So things could happen in the lobby a little bit differently. But, you know, other teams were involved. The Angels were involved. Um, I think the Dodgers might have been involved uh, at, at some point. Uh, so you now you're, you're measuring multiple teams and multiple um, offers that could be out there. How does it, you know, kind of you, you narrow it down and then you get the deal done with, with one? Yeah, you know you do. You kind the the thing you kind of get. You're, you're always looking for what you want, you know. And there's if you if you're if you're having to move somebody, you know you're okay. You're always looking for what you want back, and so you just take that from each club and you try to put okay, where does he fit? If he's a you know we would put a four being a utility type player, a five being an everyday player, a six being an above average player, and a seven or an eight being an all star, you know, great player. So you would take the people back and they were all assigned a number. So we're going to trade, you know, a, a Cabrera, which we said was a seven or an eight and a Dontrell, yep. which was like a six. And so we really need pieces back. And when you're dealing with prospects, you know, it's a little tougher because they haven't really proven themselves at the major league level yet. And so Miller was just starting to get there. And so some of the guys in the thing were just like in double a. And so you have these prospect numbers on them, but, 
inevitably what happens with prospect numbers, the prospect numbers 90% of the time are higher than the reality of what they become. We always want to see the glass half full. And so that's what we're doing is trying to see the best they can be. So that's the danger in trading for prospects is that that six become ends up a four or that seven mm-hmm. ends up a five, you know, that's, that when you're looking at it that way. So it's always hard to do, but uh, for us, sometimes we were pressed into some of those deals. We just needed to have it done for financial reasons or whatever. And so it puts you in a tough spot. And what you always tried to do was not let the money play into it. You tried to play into what what's the best value we can get in terms of players back on this deal to make it work for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's kind of funny from an, an organizational standpoint. Obviously, the fans see the end result and you see a popular Hall of Famer leave and a very popular pitcher leave and your last two real big pieces from the 03 World Series team leave. But there is, you know, like you said, there's an adrenaline because your job as an executive is to make a trade. You're giving your marching orders, you know, they want to move these players from ownership and you're trying to work the best deal. And like you say, and a lot goes into that. And and then, you know, from a media standpoint, we're chasing the story. So we, you know, we're, however it plays out, isn't in our control. We're just trying to get the news right and the pieces right and 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 the rationale explained right. You know, so it's it creates a, a very interesting dynamic because is from the industry standpoint, you're looking at at the time what was considered a very good baseball deal. And that's kind of the feedback I was hearing from other people around the league. Obviously the end result was Maven and Miller both have very good big league careers, but after they left Miami. And then we all know what Miguel Cabrera is. Yeah. Miguel Cabrera was, you know, we knew trading him was going to be like, it was, it was really hard to do. Uh, I think, you know, ownership felt like that's what needed to be done. So trying to get enough back for him uh, was really hard. And then when you had Dontrell to it, who had been a big part of the world series and all that. So it was just really hard to do, but those were two big pieces. I mean, Maven, you know, going into it was considered a monster piece. And, and so was Miller. I mean, a big six, six lefty with the kind of stuff he had. And again, they were just a little bit um, young, you know, on the scale, trying to, trying to make that thing work. And so then we had to drop down into their system, into other pieces um, that we thought, you know, we thought would work, but they were double A and maybe triple A type guys. And maybe even a couple of K, I think one case there was an A ball player put in it, um, that yeah. had big upside, but again, they're hard. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing and it's hard to watch them walk out the door. And as you're doing it, it's kind of like, you're like, you're going, is this, is this really happening when you're trying to trade a player of that magnitude? And like, are we sure we're getting back enough, you know? And if you're pressed on the money side, as well, that puts a little pressure on you that you try to stay away from. But at the end of the day, if your orders are, we get, we need to get this done, then it has some effect on, on how you look at it, but, uh, uh, they're hard to do and they're, but they're fun. It's an exciting time because you know, you're, you're in the middle of a, you know, you're in the middle of something, you know, it's going to make a big splash when it, when it actually happens. Yeah. Yeah. You're the eyes of the meetings, you know? Um, and, and then let's fast forward in 2011, the Marlins are just, you know, ended their tenure as residents at what is now Hard Rock Stadium, the home of the Miami Dolphins, and were moving to what was Marlins Park, now Lone Depot Park in Miami. And a lot of buzz after the 11th season, the winter meetings of 2011, the Marlins went on big spending spree to, you know, um, 
kind of you know drum up big excitement for the inaugural 2012 season in downtown Miami on the grounds of where the Orange Bowl was. And, and the Marlins were kind of the, the newsmakers of that winter meetings as well. Uh, that's when they started the meetings off by signing Jose Reyes for over $100 million. Uh, They got uh, Mark Burley uh, for a big contract, who was with Ozzie Guillen, who was high-profile manager. And Heath Bell was a you know 50-or-so game closer you know, in San Diego. And, you know, they're in on Albert Pujols, in on C.J. Wilson. The Marlins seem to be in on everyone and making news left and right for those four days. And it was cold in Dallas from what I remember. And I didn't really have much uh, off time. (laughs) I was just kind of working nonstop because one thing was happening after another. And it seemed like I wrote nonstop for, for four days. And for you guys who are in on all of it, what was that kind of experience like when the eyes were on you for a free agent type of buzz? Well, I will say this. It's a much better feeling to sit in a room when you're talking about acquisition of major league players, you know, established major league players. And, you know, can we get this done in a free agent situation? And how many of these are we trying to do? How will we fill out our club? So the conversation, just the, this, the feel of the room is completely different because when you're letting a McGill Cabrera walk down the road, that's hard. But when you're adding players, you know, like Reyes and Burley and some of those guys and, and still working on trade stuff and trying to really put together a club that's going to fit that new stadium, the, I mean, there's a little more bounce in your step. I have to be honest. And it's, it's exciting. And, uh, and you know, you're doing things that are really going to affect, hopefully affect Miami, affect that, that city and affect, you know, your fan base and all those different things. Uh, when you're going the other way, it's just, a, it's a tougher deal. So this, this is, that was a really an exciting one because there's a lot of good things going down. And, and uh, so it, again, whole, really the whole feel of the room is, is really different. What is different when it's uh, pursuing, obviously trades, everyone's inputs involved because, you know, the scouts are, are involved because you're multiple teams. you got to engage your relationships with, you know, people in other clubs. Um, and you, that's what was so great about what you guys did. Your team had such good people, skills, people, you know, yourself, and DJ and, you know, all these people, Mike Hill, that could really relate and knew everybody in the sport. And you could really get that. You could get the makeup on the players. You get all of that stuff to make a trade. On the flip side, when you're signing $100 million players, how is that just Jeffrey and at the time Larry or Michael with with um, with Scott Boris or, or whoever the agent is? Or how does that kind of come into play a little bit more when free agents are involved? Well, what happens? Yeah, th- that really kind of goes back to that group you're talking about, those higher level guys. I mean, we all had input on what we thought the value of that particular free agent was. Uh, and then, but the one thing we did most get to do is we, is we were, the thing was, we were talking to those people is that the agent would come up and sit down and, you know, Jeffrey would be in the room. And of course, Larry Beinfest, Mike Hill, whoever, how we were doing at the time. But we get to sit in and, and kind of listen to it. So you learn some things about how the negotiation thing would go and talked about what the parameters might be. Um, so that was fun to do, you know, to be a part of it. But at the end of the day, I'm, the thing was, you know, not finalized there ever. It was always done as they leave and a phone call would be made and final offer would be made. But that would be talked about uh, in the room once the agent left uh, with, with the, you know, with the player we were talking about and then the thing would be finalized. And uh, so you really felt like, you know, you really felt like you were right in the middle of it. I think what really helped our group is I think we had a lot of guys there, uh, you know, and that, at that time that were really people, I think that 
people trusted, you know, thought they were honest folks. And again, you know, baseball, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a give and take, but we all felt like our people were really solid people. And, and, uh, when we said something, I think people believe what we were saying because we were trying to be straight up and, and forthright in what we we're talking about. And uh, there's always gamesmanship, but I don't think, you know, we were trying to deceive anybody at any time along the way. And I think that helped, that helped get, uh, get deals done. So that was, that was part of it as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, now, great stuff, Stan, and, and that's what, for our audience, I just want to illuminate what winter meetings can look like from the people inside's point of view. Um, and, you know, like we said, we we touched on the down years when, you like you said, you sat there. And I know, like, whether it was Larry Beinfest or, or Michael Hill were, the, were kind of the point that we would talk as media, you're always, we're trying to get something done. And, and you know, you wouldn't feel very, very satisfied at a meeting if, if literally you left with nothing, you know, because you were trying to improve the club or, or send it in a direction to improve the club and 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 really kind of use the the fact that everybody's there and new ideas are popped up and, and brought up and you bump into this person, you might find out something that you didn't anticipate. Do you have any stories along those lines where where something happened at a winter meetings that just by chance that you didn't necessarily anticipate something, but just lobby war- working or pumping into somebody, you, you stumbled on a, a move that proved significant. Well, I, I would say this. I would say that our, our owner, Jeffrey Laurie, who again, I've always appreciated because he educated uh, uh, my, you know, three children. He got them through college for me, which <laughs> really helped, really helped along the way. But he was, you know, he was one of those guys that, uh, you know, things could change on a dime because as we talked about things and someone would, you know, we didn't have anything in mind about a player. And I don't know a specific one off the top of my head, but we would be going a certain direction. And then someone would come in the room, say an Orrin Freeman and Orrin Freeman, you know, uh, God rest his soul. We lost Orrin a few years ago, but Orrin was wonderful in terms of his knowledge of all the people in the, you know, in the industry and his contacts were so great. And he always had a real sense and a real feel of what kind of generally we wanted done. And so we might be looking at a particular player with a particular club or going a certain direction. And he might walk in the room and say, uh, got one for you guys here. Just got this down in the you know lobby. And we might be able to do this and this for this particular guy that we were willing to move or whatever, but it would fill the need that we were looking for maybe in a greater way than the guy we'd kind of focused on. We just didn't realize that other guy would be available. So he, he did a great job. I thought Orton was one of the key figures in that whole thing through those years because he did a great job of, of bringing solid, you know, there's in those meetings too, you, you know, Joe, there's, there's rumors everywhere, right? There's rumors yeah. all over the place and every, you know, we were, you know, some team's going to, you know, sign whatever, whatever. So you have all this stuff going on, but when Orton came back with information, it was always solid information. It wasn't, well, I heard that he, he really had, cause people he was talking to were, higher up in the know, uh, knew what their club wanted to do. And the same thing happened. Clubs went with to Oren. He knew what we were wanted to do. And so he played a big role, I think, uh, as a special assistant for us during that time. And so, uh, yeah, you could, and, and the owner was willing, he was open to doing those things. He was open to listen to what we had and what we thought if it was a good value. So we could change on a dime really. And, and you know how those meetings are. There's, you know, there's so many things going on that, you can go in there really looking at it one way, a particular player, and come out with a completely different player that really fits your need in a better way. That happened several times. Yeah, and 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 back to Oren. Uh, I remember back one of the meetings in in Vegas, and I, I was 
so or in very early in the process, you know, as the meetings are kicking off and we were just talking in general terms about getting deals done. He goes, Joe, keep this in mind. He goes, uh, you know, people may say what they say about Jeffrey Loria, but, you know, he's active in our room and he is here. And there are some other organizations that they may have four or five owners or whatever. And making major moves requires getting different people you know, on board. He said, Jeffrey's in the room and, you know, if Jeffrey signs off on it, we can make a move very quickly because we have, yes, you, we know, we're, you don't we have did. to jump through so many hurdles because some other clubs may not. We're seeing uh, Stephen Cohen over with the Mets. He's that kind of, obviously his, his resources are at next level, but, you know, he's very active and, and big money and, and one voice who's very involved and just makes moves that he feels it's, if he's sold on it, you know, the Mets, that's what makes them even more dangerous now is they have the resources to and they have the owner who's willing to to react quickly and, and make moves. Yes, sir. And that's that's, that's what Jeffrey did. And of course, David Sampson was the president of the club and he was there with him, too, and knew all the financial uh, implications of what we were doing. And so things could happen very quickly. And I think really what, you know, what David and, and Jeffrey always wanted to know was, you know, OK, are, are we is this the deal that really makes our club better? And so we would have that internal discussion, but yeah, there's a lot of times that we, things change really quick, very quickly because those two guys always came, the owner and the president of the club always came. And, and obviously we had the, you know, president of baseball ops or GM or whatever there, you know, as well. So we had everybody in one spot and it's kind of really one of the few times you really get everybody in one spot with 29 other clubs have their people in one spot. And so again, without Twitter, you're just say there was a lot of runs to the lobby and a lot of, you know, looking to find people and, and whatnot. So, uh, it, that's kind of made it exciting in a different way. And, uh, you just knew you just basically it was like getting your game face on when you head to the winter meetings, get your game face on because we were always pretty active, as active as we could be within the within the you know, industry is, is what was going on. So it made it fun. It made it exciting. And, and uh, you just never knew what you'd come out of there with. But you always were trying to prove the club, obviously. Well, like I've always told people, you know, the, my long tenure covering the Marlins um, and fortunate enough to have cover a championship season as well uh, through the, the highs and the lows was this, the organization was never boring and they were certainly very newsworthy, you know, cause there are a lot of other clubs with, uh, with losing seasons and so forth that you hardly ever hear about them with the Marlins. They're very active and very newsy and, and everyone seems to have something to, an opinion on them, you know, you know, compared to some other clubs where you hardly hear anything out of them. Now, you 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 know some people may scratch their head on a few of the moves, but that was you know part of the thing. We you know, but again, when you have an owner that wants to be involved and wants to be part of it, and it's you know he's he owns the club, and you know again, it's his right to do. You know, as I say, he's got executive privilege on whatever he wants to do. We would just try to direct him in, in ways that we thought were you know were smart baseball wise and that would improve our club and and always trying to understand the financial ramifications of where we were. But he always would say, don't worry about the money. Let's talk about the players. Let me deal with all these other things. And so uh, he was, you know, right there with you. Uh, you know, you could talk back with him and visit with him about what you thought. And so it, it did, it made it, made it exciting because you kind of knew every time going in that, uh, that something could happen. Cause we, we were, again, we were very active. Yeah. And, and speaking of money, uh, see, I want to take a, a little bit of time as we transition a little bit to, uh, some of these deals, because we're looking at, I'm going to read a couple of to you, 11 years, Trey Turner, 300 million. 
Aaron Judge, nine years, $360 million. Uh, Xander Bogarts, 11 years, $280 million. Uh, Jacob deGrom, five years, $185 million. Justin Verlander, two years, almost $87 million. Carlos Correa, three years, $350 million. Obviously, none of them went to a small market team uh, and or a small revenue team. How do you think this is uh, where the landscape is? I know the market is the market. And everyone's got to play by this. But how do you feel it, it will impact and does impact how the lower market clubs do business? And how concerned should clubs be? Well, I think they should be somewhat concerned because it kind of is becoming the haves and the have-nots. Uh, thankfully, they've increased to maybe the number of clubs that can get to the playoffs. So uh, maybe you don't have to be one of those big market clubs to get there. But to win it, you know, uh, it's, it's just that much tougher because – Small market clubs just cannot, you know, financially do those things and, and that the big clubs can. But I would say that the health of the game is pretty good. There's plenty of money in it. looks like, you know, we can't cry poor in that regard. There's plenty of guys getting a lot of money. But I do think it's causing things to really start to separate. It's like, you know, there, there's teams going to the left and teams going to the right. And if you're not going the right direction with those big clubs, it puts you in a very difficult small spot because – you just have to be, you know, you just can't make as many mistakes. You know, I mean, it, you know, you pay a big, a guy, a big number. Obviously they're, they're the guys we're talking about are established big name star players and they change the dynamic of your club. But uh, for small market clubs, you know, you, you, you just can't make mistakes, even on smaller type deals. When you're signing a guy for three years and 36 million or four years and 60 million. You know, if you take Miami, the two guys they've signed recently and Soler and Garcia, those guys have to be good players for Miami because yeah. if they're not, that's $90 million outlay or whatever they gave. So they can't afford to miss on those kind of guys. And if they do, it really sets them back where the big market yeah, clubs can, you know, if it doesn't work for the big market club, they just move on and they just, they're just looking for the next, big aircraft carrier they can land. They're just looking for the next big one. And, you know, when clubs have, you know, money to spend, they're going to spend it. And that's, uh, you know, that's just the way it works. And, and I mean, as a small market club, we never didn't bother us. We understood that was the game, but it wasn't an excuse for us either. We couldn't use it as an excuse. So in 2003, when we won, it made it very, very satisfying to win with a smaller payroll and, and end up beating the, you know, the, the boys in New I York. That was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and that's the point. And I think, you know, I saw where someone on Twitter was noting what Correa signed with, with the giants, like a day after the Mets allegedly were, were somewhat interested and they're like, well, at least he didn't go to the Mets. And I started looking, I'm like, okay, well he's in the national league. And like you say, there's an expanded playoff. So in the NL East, the Marlins, you know, for example, and, and the, the nationals, they're looking at the Braves, Mets and Phillies who all have improved the, the Braves. We'll see what happens with Swanson, but they get one of the top young catchers in the sport in, in Murphy. Um, and so those are three teams that you have to really contend with when you considering when you finished 32 games out a year ago in Miami. Then you look at the Padres. We know what they did. Uh, we know the Dodgers won 111 last year. And then um, San Francisco was 81 and 81. They're the team that got Correa. And then in the central, you're looking at St. Louis and Milwaukee were, you know, the, the playoff teams a year ago. And so, okay, where's that six? The, the problem is, okay, Correa isn't necessarily with the Mets, making the Mets even stronger. 
he, he know he's with a team making a team, another team you have to compete with if you have postseason aspirations in mind. So it doesn't really do you any big favors. And especially now with the, with the schedules, you're going to be playing the Giants more. You're not just going to play them necessarily six times. You might play them nine times. And you're not going to play the Mets 18 or 19 times. You might play them 15 times, whatever the, the breakdown is. Yeah, it, it's really tough for the small market club when you start. Sick. But again, I mean, if I'm a big market club, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm kind of sorry about you. You know, I'm, I'm going to go do what I got to do because they're trying to win. And these people yes. that are spending money are trying to win. That's why they're doing it. And so it really puts a lot of pressure on the small market club to try to be right. And uh, that's where they have to, in my opinion, the best way they spend their money is not go get one $300 million player, but take your money and go do the best you can do in the draft, do the best you can do internationally and do the best you can do, uh, you know, with, with free agents or smaller type players or make good decisions regarding those guys. You just, you just have to work all angles uh, and you have to be right a lot, but uh, trying to spend your money the right way for a small market club is a really big thing where a big market club can kind of, they can kind of just go get the big guys. And so, it just it's just kind of the way it is. Not, yeah, not a lot you can do about it if you're small. That's a club. really good point, Stan. I think that our listeners need to really kind of pick up on that because because you're right. You have to also, I think you have to realize where you are in your window of winning. You know, if you're not really there, then you can't, you know, to me, you spend when you're when you're there and you need a piece to get you over the top. But hopefully if you're like that market team, like a Marlins or the Rays, we saw the Rays do it locking up um, Wanda Franco, you know, and they find their their own and identify early, and that's their big mo- their big money move. Um, and so they have yeah. them as their core, but they're not just saying, okay, well, we're thirty two out of first place, like Miami, and say, well, let's go get Trey Turner. Oh, how much does really Trey Turner move the needle? He makes you better, but you know he doesn't necessarily put you in the playoffs. And, you know, unless you're going to keep spending, you know, to get, you know, two other bats. And what is that? What happens, you know, players now, if you look at them, you know, you're, I think, you know, you're kind of evaluating players now. I think teams are as 120 games is like the new 140 games or 150 games because players simply get a lot more time off either with injury, attrition. So you're, you know, you're still, if, if Trey Turner plays 100, 30 games for you. He's not thir- starting 32 games for you because you're giving him some time off. And how are you going to have enough to fill all those innings and kind of equal the balance of the games he's not playing? If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's a it's a real tough spot for a small market club because I, I and again I go back. I you know again I was 20 years with Miami, so I continue to follow Miami and see what they do and how things are going. And they keep talking about you know the Brian Reynolds thing from the Pirates. Well, yeah, you could go, but the the cost is so prohibitive. If you go get him, then you're talking about taking three or four young pitchers that are just kind of making their way right to the big leagues. And you take that off your staff, then yeah, you have a nice center fielder, but you've got way more pieces you need than just him. And then if you really deplete your pitching staff, you know, what does that do for you overall? Because at the end of the day, we watch playoff games and they're not usually, you know, 11 to 10. They're 3 yes. 2, 4 2, 2 1. I mean, pitching at the end of the day in this game, you know, pitching wins. So if you've got it, then you need to try to, you know, keep it. And so that's where the drafting and the amateur draft and the international signings and those kind of things where you can grow your own. There's still value. 
and there's more value in growing your own when you're a small market club than a big market club, but there's still value. Prospect capital or players that play for you, the value of having that is huge. So to me, that's where you spend your money because you go get Trey Turner and put him in Miami. I mean, right now in their situation, uh, the money, in my opinion, could be spelt, be spent very well in a different place. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, unless Trey Turner was the piece that gave you the World Series or, or gets you over the top, yeah, which exactly. is a different conversation, which is a different conversation. A different, yeah, a completely different conversation because, yeah, I, in fact, I said to someone, I said, what about Reynolds? It's great if it puts them over the top, if it puts them where they're competitive for the next four or five years. If they have young hitters coming that they really believe in, that will fill in some other spots, and he's the guy that really sets them up and, you know, does what he can do, which obviously he's a great player. Then great, but if that's not the case, and you're further away than that, and that's Kim's decision, you know she's got to figure that out as a general manager, and, and I'm sure she will. And they'll they'll work on it. But yeah, you've you've got to know when your window is in that small market and figure out how you're gonna, you know, how you're gonna spend your dollars the right way because, you know, there are only so many dollars for small market clubs, and they've get, really got to make decisions on how to do that. So, yeah, and and back with the Marlins real fast, where I don't see and you know. We both look at this team and have looked at them a long time. And I look in, you know, I spent 20 years spending just looking at every angle, like basically, and you probably as well, how do they make the team better? How do they do this better? Because if that's your full-time job, you, you, you're you playing these games in your mind. And I do not see any scenario where the Miami Marlins are contenders in 2023 if they trade Pablo Lopez. So well, if you're they, trading I, Pablo I, Lopez... You know, you can't trade your second best pitcher when you have three other pitchers that haven't really pitched more than 120 innings or whatever, um, you know, and they're still kind of young. And then you're putting that demand on them and then hoping a prospect like Yuri Perez or will at 20 years old will step up and carry to the postseason. So it's like, yeah, I can see trading Pablo Lopez, but you're acknowledging you're a few years away. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 You, you can't are. have it and both they, ways. They, you can't not spend on free agents and then trade your second best pitcher and say we're in it. No, you can't. It just doesn't work that way. It's a tough spot. It really becomes a tough spot for him because, you know, you know that Pablo Lopez is going to keep you in the ball game about every time he goes out there. And, uh, you know, and again, I think people have said it along the way. Anyone's tradable. If you're, if you're getting the right pieces back, you know, yes. but when, you know, people, people out there on the 29 other clubs are smart, you know, they know what they're doing. So they're trying to do a fair thing and fair deal. And so it, it's, a, it puts them in a tough spot, but I will tell you when you're walking away from, if you walk away from pitching capital, I mean, so I don't know what Verlander get, you know, what did, <laughs> what did I, get? Say, what, I know, I know <laughs> they're the, I know they're the great ones, but still you, you gotta, you've got to, Understand 87 the value million of those guys. Two years, 87 million for Verlander. You've got to keep your pitching. Uh, you have to keep. Yeah. yeah, you really do. I mean, I, that's just my opinion. I, I've always thought you've just got to keep pitching and you've got to try to find through whatever means you can, you know, some, some offensive. I get it. You know, I get it. You want offense. I get it. And But if you're a small market club, if you told me we had some offense or we could pitch, I'd always say, let's take pitching because that keeps you in every ball game. No, that's great, great points, great advice. And uh, that's a great note to kind of wrap this up on. Um, Stan, again, you know, your insights are, and your friendship mean so much to me. And uh, we, we value your opinions. And, uh, and um, 
happy um, um, holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll get you on at the, you know, at the first of the year when we when we wrap this up, getting closer to to spring training, and and now we'll do it on our Man on Second podcast here on the Coach and Kernan Network. Uh, make sure you follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, all those major platforms that carry podcasts, um, carry us, and. Uh, we will have more scheduling stuff as we figure out what the holidays is going to do or are going to do for us. But uh, till then, Joe Forsaro, man on second. We are signing out. Have a good one, everyone.